Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we will be talking about Danny Boyle's Yesterday. The, the director's new film, which was written by Richard Curtis, is, hit theaters last weekend and was not able to topple Toy Story 4 at the box office. And, you know, so it's, it, it did quite well. It did all right. It did all right. We're not going to go into heavy spoilers on the movie, but uh, we did want to talk about it. And because uh, we're both Danny Boyle fans, we want to talk a little bit about his filmography as well. But, you know, initial thoughts on yesterday. Adam, what did you think about the film? So I was really excited for this. Uh, I mean, I'm not the world's biggest Beatles fan. I like the Beatles, uh, as does everyone who has a heart or a soul. Um, but I do really like Danny Boyle. I'm kind of a Danny Boyle apologist. I, I, I like his films that some people don't like as much. And I think he's always pretty interesting. And I love Richard Curtis. And so I was super excited for this movie and really let down and really disappointed. And my main takeaway was, huh, finally a Richard Curtis movie where the love story doesn't work. I don't think really anything about this movie worked. Like it's the thing about yesterday is like, it's not like I hated it. Like there was never a point where I was like, like, Oh, I really hate this. Really put off by some stuff that happens at the end. Um, I didn't have that strong of a reaction to it. That's the thing. I didn't have any strong reaction to it other than disappointment. And I don't think the love story aspect works. And I don't really think the the hook of it, which is the Beatles works either. I don't think either one is really invested with the detail that it needs to succeed. So for those, those who haven't seen yesterday or haven't seen the trailers or whatever, um, uh, Himish uh, Patel plays, uh, Jack Malik, who is an aspiring singer songwriter. He's got the skill to sing, um, but no one cares about his music and he's playing to sort of empty tents at music festivals. And he's about to give it up when there's a worldwide blackout. He gets hit by a bus. When he wakes up, he's the only person that can remember the music of the Beatles. So he decides I'm going to pretend like I wrote all these Beatles songs, which are, Bonafide hits, as we all know, the music industry is a meritocracy, and the, the these songs, the the worth of these songs is undeniable. And I will become a star. Meanwhile, he doesn't seem to pick up on the fact that his manager slash lifelong friend Ellie, played by uh, Lily Evans, uh, has a huge crush on him. And so that's the love story, meeting the fame story of like you know his meteoric rise to success in the music industry by playing the music of the Beatles. It it's just it doesn't work. I can't. There's nothing in this film that's like yes, on point, nailed it. Lily James, Lily, Lily James. Evans. There are too many lilies. There's Lily there Evans. There's Lily James. There's Lily Collins. There's yes. too many lilies. How many L's in Lily? Um, yeah, it's a weird movie. I think that it's got two. The two ideas don't really mesh, and the two ideas don't really work well on their own. So the the idea. The idea that someone wakes up and realizes they're the only person in the world who remembers the Beatles is a really interesting idea, and it's a great premise, and that's what got us all excited about it, in addition to the fact that it was Danny Boyle directing a Richard Curtis script. Um, I don't think that it's followed through. Like, It doesn't really investigate, okay, what does a world look like without the Beatles? There's a – there's – you know – there's it's made mention in the film that a world without the Beatles is is a sadder place, a lesser world. And the world doesn't seem sadder. The world doesn't seem lesser. I feel like there should have been more impact. There are a couple of 
um, like differences in the world that are played for jokes, which are kind of funny. Um, well, one of them is funny. One of them is kind of baffling. Um, another one I can't even remember. Um, but it doesn't really investigate that idea. Like I think that would have been – I mean the Beatles, whether you like them or not, are the most influential band in the history of music. Like they – their reach – not just in terms of music, but in terms of pop culture, in terms of life, in terms of lifestyles. There's an editor from Pitchfork listening to this podcast right now being like, no, it's the Pixies. <laughs> it's the Rolling Stones. Come on. Um, which, yes, the Rolling Stones are great. But it, I, I just feel like that impact, uh, there's never been a band like them. There never will be a band like them. In the span of what, like six, seven, eight years together, they made some of the best music ever made. Uh, basically one decade together. Yeah. One decade like, publishing albums. They were together playing strip clubs before that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's insane. Like they are a unique story. Their music is also insanely diverse in that short period of time. Like the range of styles of music that they created. Yeah, it goes from pop to like psychedelic rock in the space of a decade. <laughs> it's insane. And yet the movie only goes so far as yes, these are good songs. Or beautiful songs um, and not really investigating like what does the world look like without them. And then on the other hand, you have this love story aspect, which Richard Curtis writes great love stories. Um, you know, he wrote Love Actually, Notting Hill, Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, uh, About Times, most recent one. Uh, and the love stories in those movies are really heartbreaking and they feel very real and very grounded and very real to life. I don't think the love story in this movie works. It's a it's a reverse, um, you know, uh, it's the reverse of what's usually the thing, which is you know, childhood best friends. Boy has always been in love with the girl, but the girl doesn't know it. And this one, girl has always been in love with a guy, and the guy doesn't know it. But I never really bought that she was in love with him, and I never really bought that he would flip that switch to turn on affection or to like realize, oh, I have always loved her, or I have some sort of affection for her. And I don't know if it's – I didn't really feel much chemistry between the two leads. I mean they're both fine actors, and I think Hamish Patel does a really great job um, leading this movie. But I just never really felt a spark there. So I'm watching this movie. I'm watching the Beatles stuff, which isn't really as interesting as I thought it might be. And then I'm watching the love story, which I don't buy and I'm not invested in. So it was just a bummer. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to do the thing where it's like, I'll rewrite your movie for you and tell you how it could have worked. But I do think it is a valid criticism to be like, you had this great premise and you failed to deliver, especially when this premise offers you such fertile, dramatic ground. And the thing that sort of jumped out at me at first, like in the first act of the film, when he discovers he's the only one who knows the music of the Beatles, is it kind of reminded me of About Time. Because in About Time, which which Richard Curtis wrote and directed... The idea of that film is that what if you could love without risk? That's the, basically the conceit. Yes, he can go back in time and like whatever. That's not the conceit of the film. The conceit of the film is what if you could avoid rejection in love? How would you live your life differently? And that's sort of the fantastical sort of homily, uh, you know, that leads to a story about that's really powerful about love and relationships. So because love ties it all together, you can make a story where it's like, what if you could love without risk? But where yesterday starts is like, what if you could make art without risk? Like, that's the fantastical premise. So what if you could make art? These are the Beatles songs. These are bona fide hits. This is gold. These are the Glenn Gary leads. Like, these, this, is, this will rocket you to the top. And you don't have to put any of your own art out on display, which people seem to hate. Um, or, as, as uh, 
Kate McKinnon's character puts it, I don't even, I don't even care about it enough to hate it. Um, the issue is that the film doesn't bother to explore that. It doesn't actually bring up art at all in a really disappointing way. The, there's no consideration about why some artwork and some art works and, you know, why some art doesn't. Or there's no consideration. At no point does Jack is like, oh, no one wants to hear what I have to say. Like, that's not his, his conflict in the movie is, I'm a fraud, but not in the way of like, oh, my music, I'm, I'm suppressing my own art. It's just, I know this, I'm passing off someone else's art as mine. But at no point does the film stress, oh, Jack actually has something worthwhile to say, which is disappointing. Like, we, I can't invest in him as an artist. The most I can invest in him is as the world's most talented cover artist. Yeah, it that that's a good point because it's never really established that his music is like being uh it's like the work of like a genius who's not recognized in his time. Like his songs are fine. They're not spectacular. They're not even really that interesting. I think the the kind of the crux of that first act is basically just that uh Lily James's character uh likes him so much. Like she's so supportive. She's pretending to be his or she's acting as his manager. Um and he's not very good at what he's doing, and so you're supposed to take away from that, oh, she must really like him. Right. Uh, it's not that the world would would be at such a loss if we lost original Jack Malick songs. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of a bummer. I mean, I I investigated this idea a little bit because it's the, the credit is the screenplay is by Richard Curtis, and it's a story by Jack Barth and Richard Curtis. Um and investigating it a little bit, the I, the whole idea for this movie actually originated with Jack Barth and Mackenzie Crook, uh, who was an actor you might know from the Pirates Caribbean movies, the one whose eye keeps popping out uh, and on The Office. Uh, and they actually originated this idea, and the, the script was being developed, but it wasn't there. And then they brought Richard Curtis on to kind of rework it. So maybe that's why it doesn't have that Richard Curtis magic of his other films. I mean, I will say Pirate Radio is a film of his that I'm not super crazy yeah about. i'm not a huge fan of pirate radio but it's okay i mean it kind of works as like a kind of a a, a boozy jukebox musical a bit um but uh you expect him to really like this is a love story this is really a romantic comedy and you expect him to really nail it and it just doesn't click and it's just a it's just a bummer yeah, the the the, the again the romance side doesn't really work because for all the reasons you said, there's not a lot of chemistry there. There's no there's no even real definition to the characters for the most part. I mean, yeah, no. we get to know who Jack is. I really couldn't tell you three things about Ellie other than she like she likes Jack. She's a school teacher. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's kind of the thing, right? Is that in it like it's a failure of writing, but I also think it's a failure of direction. And I really like Danny Boyle, but. Visually, this movie is not interesting. No, and he seems to put the most effort into being like the superimposed titles of where they are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when it comes to like nailing like tone and like comedic beats, there were a number of jokes that fell flat. Uh, and I saw this in a theater that was full of people. Um, though I will say someone applauded at the end and it made an A minus cinema score. So people like it, but it may be that Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, it's, like, I think it's that Bohemian Rhapsody is like, I recognize the thing. Oh, yeah. I too like the music of the Beatles. I'm like, okay, but that's not a movie. I yeah. can't, if I just sit you down and play the one album, that's not a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I, I did, uh, my fiance and I put on the Beatles in our car on the drive home from the theater. Um, but that doesn't mean the movie itself was, was good. Um, 
but I was really kind of shocked at how uninteresting Danny Boyle's direction is. And and this movie, so uh, he was developing this at the time that he got the job to direct Bond 25. And he agreed to direct Bond 25 under the condition that he was allowed to finish this movie. He really wanted to finish this movie. So it's not like this was a director for hire job. He was really into it and he's, he was really interested in making it. Um, I just think I think it's visually his most uninteresting movie maybe he's ever made. Uh, there's really not much going on, and it, it's not to say I I don't necessarily need uh, something as dynamic as 127 hours or uh, 28 days later to be happening. But I was just kind of uh, my jaw was kind of on the floor at just how kind of boring some of these shots it's, were. It's incredibly anonymous. It, yeah. there's nothing in this film really that signifies it as a Danny Boyle film. No. And I understand when it comes to comedy, that's a different kind of direction because, I mean, Kate McKinnon's character, I really liked her character and I liked her performance a lot. Um, And you can imagine there was a lot of improv there. So when you're setting up those shots, they can't be super composed because you have to allow for room for the improv to breathe and breathe and stuff like that. Um, So that's something positive I can say about the movie. I liked Kate McKinnon's performance in it. Uh, And I liked Lily James in it. And there were moments of it that were like kind of fun and really interesting. Um, but like, there's a whole sequence where he plays let it be for the first time. That's supposed to be really funny, but I didn't find it very funny or interesting. I was just kind of like a little cringy and a little bored, which I was bored was, and I was frustrated. Yeah. Which is not the intention of the scene. You can see what the intention of the scene is, but the scene does not play that well. It doesn't play the way it, that you can see in your head. Like, Oh, I understand the idea behind this scene. Like he's trying to play, let it be. It's the first time anyone in this world has heard, let it be. And it keeps getting interrupted. And it's funny because it's one of the greatest songs ever written. These are ostensibly the first people to ever hear it. It should be this magical moment. And they're busy like getting tea and getting coffee and answering the door and whatever. But it's like the execution of it. Like it does not come off. Well, I just wanted it to be over. Yeah. And that's kind of how I felt about the whole thing. I just, I just <laughs> want this to be over. Yeah, yeah there's and it's a bummer. It is a bummer, and I, and I am a massive Beatles fan. And the way the film treats the Beatles is completely indifferent. You could really drop the Beatles and mate and like sub in the Rolling Stones. You could drop the whole premise of music and be like, he's the only one that remembers ad jingles, and like now he becomes a really successful ad executive. Like that's for all the film marketing and even the title rests on Beatles, it doesn't care. And, and I'm, not, I'm just talking about just re- not even talking about, ooh, what would happen if you remove the Beatles from history? It just doesn't seem to have any sort of specificity to it and no real sense of like what these songs mean in their time. And even Jack's character is not like a huge Beatles fan. Like he spends parts of the movie trying to figure out like, what are the, we're trying to remember the words to Eleanor Rigby. Like it's not a film where the Beatles are really appreciated in any substantive way. Well, yeah, and it's like Jack also struggles. Like Jack doesn't know the meaning behind any of the songs. He doesn't. He doesn't understand the emotional resonance of these songs, other than like, this is a bop. Like this is a really fun song. Yeah, it's like this is a banger. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is frustrating because you could imagine a, a more thoughtful version of the movie that would get across like, okay, how meaningful are the Beatles? He, you know, him explaining like this is why Eleanor Rigby is so emotional. This is why Hey Jude is is such an interesting and impactful song. But he, he does uh, – like the film itself, 
he doesn't really investigate any further into it other than like, oh, yeah, that's fun. And again, not to, to write a new version of the film, but if you're like, oh, he's the only one who remembers the Beatles, what if he were like an actual huge Beatles fan and he can't explain to our modern world and into a world that doesn't have the Beatles why the Beatles are important? That would actually be a really strong critique of like what makes music special. You know, why why are some songs hits and some aren't? You know, yeah. and instead the film just sort of is like, oh yeah, these film these songs would be hits no matter what at no, any time. And I don't know if I necessarily buy that. I don't like. I still yes, the Beatles music indoors, but I don't think someone who writes like Help today gets the same reaction because music has changed so much. Because the beat not just because of the Beatles influences, just music is different. A rock song from you know twenty years ago doesn't sound the same. So something that sounds like the Beatles 40 years or 50 years later certainly doesn't sound the same. And But we're just supposed to take it all, take it for granted. It's like, yeah, you know, he, he rocks out to, you know, she loves you and that'll, that'll work just fine at any era. And I just, I don't think I buy that. No, no, it's a bummer. The whole thing's a bummer. <laughs> you talk about, I just keep saying bummer because I'm a fan and I genuinely wanted to like this movie, but it, you, you, it just seems like a missed opportunity. Yeah. And it seems like they, they – that Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle as they were developing the film were like, OK, the Beatles hook is interesting, but we also have to make sure that these character work, characters work and have to make sure the romantic comedy angle works. And I think they sacrificed a lot of what makes the film interesting in doing that. Like what makes the Beatles so special? This movie doesn't explain why. This movie does yeah. not explain why the Beatles were special. It does not explain why their music was special other than it makes people happy. But it doesn't even – like it's just faceless hordes. It doesn't even hone in on like how did this song touch someone? How did this song impact someone and make their life better? It doesn't – it yeah. doesn't ask it is, it is the most surface appreciation of the Beatles. Yeah. It really is. It's just – it's it's shut up and play the hits, and that's it may it was may as well be about a world in which Limp Bizkit never lived. And he, he plays Nookie, and everyone's like, "Man, this song, <laughs> this so song good. seems like it might last for a summer." <laughs> yeah. And it's about the guy who wrote the song of the summer of 2019. <laughs> that was actually the song of the summer of 2002. Yes. Oh my goodness! All right, <laughs> all right. Um. You want to talk about Danny Boyle? Let's talk about Danny Boyle, who's an interesting cat. Um, you know, you know, I am a fan of his movies. I never watched his FX series, Trust. I saw part of it, and until you just said that now, forgot that it existed. Exactly my point. <laughs> so, um, he does, a, I mean, he is uh, an ambitious filmmaker. I mean, he also directed uh, the pilot for a, a TV TV show called Babylon, which is a British drama. Um, he directed the people. opening ceremonies for the like 2012 Olympics, which that's my favorite story is that. So trance, which is a movie that people hate that I like, uh, he shot trance and then went directly into making the opening ceremonies, which took like a year or something like that, and then went into the editing room on Trance. So like he shot a movie and then just locked it in a vault, didn't go into post-production on it until after he had finished the opening ceremonies. And the opening ceremonies, I think, should be included as part of his filmography because, like, I mean, that's a very specific directorial vision. Oh, and those for London, sure. Those London opening ceremonies are really cool. Yeah, no, I thought he did a really great job. I mean, I think that he... He really brought a lot to it. I think the thing with with Danny Boyle as a director, and I think sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And again, what makes Yesterday such a confounding film is that usually I define Danny Boyle 
as he gives you a lot. Like he he throws a lot at you. And it's not that he's not making choices, but his films are very like present. They're very the 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 editing and the cinematography is very immediate. He really wants to put you in a place uh however he can. And yesterday doesn't have that, but like, you know, for something like 127 hours it's there, uh Slumdog Millionaire it's there. Uh, you know, and that's not to say he's other, you know, he doesn't know how to have patience with his films. I mean, the, the 28 days later sequence with, uh, Killian, uh, Murphy just wandering the empty streets of London is fantastic. But I definitely feel like even in that scene, Danny Bull is, I want to put you there. I want to try to, I want to grab you with my filmmaking. Yeah. It's very visceral filmmaking. Um, and I love train spotting. Uh, which I, I, think I, I thought think Trainspotting is great. And you know what film people don't talk about? And I was thinking of it while I was watching yesterday is Trainspotting 2, which is actually yes. very good. It's very good. And no one talked about it. And I didn't see it until it came on cable. Um, but that movie is kind of terrific and kind of the perfect way to do a sequel to that film. Yes. Um, like it doesn't feel like it's treading old territory. It feels like it's like, what if these characters were this many years older? And that's the end of it. Like and then like just re- realistically investigating what does that look like and where are they at and what does that mean um, or you know you've passed or you're at kind of the midlife crisis stage. Yeah. What do what do What's what do these junkie former junkies look like in their forties? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I really liked that movie. I think it did really well in the UK. Um, just didn't really make a, t- a huge splash over here. And I think that speaks to how different things... I mean, when, when Train Spotting came out in 96, um, it was really... Or was it 90, 96 or 97? It was really like part of an indie boom of that 90s filmmaking. Like indie films yeah. like that and Pulp Fiction and like they were really making waves. And I just think Train Spotting 2 just arrived at a very different time. Yeah, it feels like, a, oh, yeah, that's the kind of movie that Focus Features puts out. Exactly. As opposed to like, oh, man, what a really visceral, interesting, like kind of um, punk rock movie. That's kind of what Trainspotting is. And I think Trainspotting 2 carries that sensibility over. It's just a very different world. Yeah. And I think it's it's a world worth exploring. I think that, you know, I, I it bums me out. Like, that's the thing. Like, Danny Boyle makes – I don't love every Danny Boyle film. Yeah, but it bums me out when people sleep on what I feel are some of his stronger stuff. Like, I feel like people kind of slept on, like people slept on Train Spotting too. They kind of slept on Steve Jobs. Oh, they and absolutely it, slept on Steve Jobs. Um, which... And even though the third act irritates the ever living shit out of me, until you get to that third act, Sunshine is like one of the best films I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then it becomes a monster movie. Then it becomes like the blur villain trying to kill everyone. It, yeah. Oh, that's frustrating. It's but, still at least visually super interesting. Oh, yeah. No, it's, I mean, it is the kind of sci-fi film you would hope to get from Danny Boyle and Alex Garland. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's messed up. It's prickly. Um, I think Chris Evans gives a really good performance on that. Yeah. Uh, but you were saying about Steve Jobs before I... Man, it makes off. me so mad <laughs> that you cut me off. Yes. Uh, no, that Steve Jobs just got – I mean it, it was a project that had been in development for a long time and you know had big names attached. David Fincher was going to direct. Maybe Leonardo DiCaprio was going to star in it. Um, you know, Aaron Sorkin wanted Tom Cruise, which is kind of funny. Uh, 
And so it came together as kind of Danny Boyle and Michael Fassbender, which is, I mean, I think the perception was kind of like this is a, a bit of a quote unquote lower rent version of this story. It also came on the heels of the Ashton Kutcher, Steve Jobs movie. So we think to the general audience, it was like, oh, that looks kind of lame. I don't know if it was even like, I think for film fans, it was like, if you were in the film, if you were a film fan, you were like, oh, this could have been David Fincher and Christian Bale. Like, yeah. oh, how amazing would that have been? Like, you know, someone who is as cold and unforgiving as David Fincher tackling a cold and unforgiving figure like Steve Jobs with an actor who disappears into his roles like Christian Bale. What a combination. But I think that's for, like, film Twitter. <laughs> yes. I think for most people, they were like, I like Apple devices. I don't really give a shit about Steve Jobs as a person. I don't yeah. want to spend two hours with Steve Jobs, not because I've never, I'll, I, I, I get it. He gave really good presentations. He created some good tech, but w like, what more do I need to know? Why do I have to buy a ticket to this? Well, I don't, I don't think they sold the structure of Aaron Sorkin's screenplay well enough. No. Um, which I think is what makes that movie worth making and interesting, which is that it's a triptych. It, it's three settings, three days each before the launch of a major Apple product. Um, the Macintosh, the Next, and the iPod. iMac. I th is it the iPod or the iMac? I think it's the iMac because he unveils the computer. That's right. It's uh, the iMac. It's the, it's, the, it's the redesigned iMac. Yeah. Uh, and then there's kind of that cringeworthy moment where he gets the idea for the iPod when he's talking to his daughter. That's yes. like, oh, that's Aaron Sorkin going a little too far. Yeah. Um, but uh, beyond that, I think uh, I think that structure is just incredible. And and I liked what Danny Boyle did with it. I mean, it's it's unmistakable to watch that movie and to think of what David Fincher would have done. But I think Danny Boyle's direction, I think his decision to ch to shoot on the film that would have been used at the time. Um, I think the first act is like 16 millimeter. Um, the second act is 35 and the third act is uh, shot digital, like 4k um, or maybe it was 6k, something like that. Uh, but I think that makes it visually interesting. And then just on top of all of that, I think Michael Fassbender gives an all timer performance in that movie. Uh, I think it's really terrific. And, and he's surrounded by great performances from Seth Rogen and Kate Winslet. Uh, uh, let's not forget that Daniel Pemberton score. Oh, that Daniel Pemberton score is so good. And then the movie just like it opened and it kind of crashed and burned on opening weekend. And then everyone decided they wanted to just get rid of it. And so like it made $34 million on a $30 million budget and received only two Oscar nominations for actor for Fassbender and supporting actress for Winslet. And that was the end of it. It just kind of unfairly just got forgotten, which was which was a bummer because I think it was seen as kind of Danny Boyle's return to Oscar filmmaking after Slumdog Millionaire, uh, after winning, you know, Best Picture and Best Director in 2008. Well, I would say film. after 127 Hours, which I think was nominated for Best Picture. Oh, yeah. I guess that's right. I keep forget. I always forget about 127 Hours. I think it's a fine movie. It's not It's not one of my favorites of his. I also don't think it's one of those films that holds up terrifically well, considering, like, I think it's its protagonist is, like, a woman beater. <laughs> it's like, oh, it turned out he? like he's, like, a horrible person in real life. Uh, Oh, that's unfortunate. That's true. Allegedly. I have to say that for legal reasons. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think 127 Hours is the kind of movie that's interesting as an idea. And like, oh, can you make that work as a movie? Like a guy just sitting in a rock. Uh, for A, a guy movie. pinned to a rock. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, it kind of works. Kind of okay. Um, Steve Jobs is one of those that like, does it work as a movie? You look at that structure and like, it does work as a movie. Yeah. No, I think Steve Jobs is is really good. And I think Steve Jobs is... You know, when we talk about distribution, you know, there are a lot of questions come up. But I really think 
release strategies are vital. Like they're they're sort of a they're not the flashiest part of the film business, but they are essential. I think Steve Jobs, had it been rolled out differently, if I think if it had been given like sort of a push at the festivals on the festival circuit, it could have mm. built its own strong buzz. But I think Universal just kind of like plopped it out and was like, yeah, this is fine. This will be a hit on its own. Like, and, and like, I think Universal drastically botched that, that release. Yeah. No, I think they did as well. I think it played at New York Film Festival, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe, but I, it should have been. It should have been at Telluride. It should have been at TIFF. It should have been, yeah. been maybe at New York Film Festival. You should have built the buzz because the reviews were positive, from what I remember. So yeah, I want to actually now see good. if uh, what I want to see what that that Ron Tomato score is. Oh, yeah. See what the consensus was. Consensus, uh, yeah, eighty-six percent. Yeah, yeah, that's positive. Solid. Yeah. So, yeah. Any anyway, I, I you know, but I even though I don't adore every single Danny Boyle film, I like his versatility as a director. Again, with the opening ceremonies, he's directed. You know, apparently his uh, Frankenstein, his stage play of that was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just, I'm. What do you th- What do you think about the beach? I think the beach is a lot of fun. The beach <laughs> is is so bonkers and out there and it shouldn't work and it doesn't work all the time but that's a film that especially in the year 2000 is swinging for the fences it has dicaprio pretty much hot off titanic and man in the iron mask and really i also think it's a vital film for dicaprio's story in his development as an actor to really push him further because that film like yeah, it's resting on sort of the fact that he is a heartthrob, but it's making it's pushing him to be a better actor at the time as well. Like I don't think you get to stronger DiCaprio performances. Um, like I don't think you get to the Aviator, you know, four years later. Yeah, um, if he keeps if without he goes, the beach. If he went from like Titanic to like Spider Man, I think that's a different story for his career. It's a very different story, and I think, and honestly, I think it's a weaker one. Yeah. Oh, uh, absolutely. I because, and, I, and I can tell you that I know it's a weaker one because what has Tobey Maguire been up to lately? <laughs> I was about to say, and then you get the career of Tobey Maguire. Who? Uh, <laughs> although, speaking of Aaron Sorkin. Speaking of Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, the Mr. X character in Molly's Game is Tobey Maguire. Yeah. The the guy who Michael Sarah plays. The guy plays. who Miss Michael Sarah plays, yeah, is Toby Maguire. It's, is based and on he Toby just Fly seems Fly. delightful. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I like The Beach, too. I remember seeing it when I was a kid, and I was like, what is this? When it gets to the video game sequence, and he's yes. running through the jungle. I was like, what is happening? I've never seen anything like this. Um, and then think, also, you know, 28 so, Days Later is a, is, a, is a revitalization of the zombie genre. Oh, absolutely. And and I think Danny Boyle should get credit for pushing the visual medium forward. I mean, he was shooting on video for 28 Days Later. And yeah, it looks like shit, but no one had done it. No one had really done it on that on that scale before. It looks um, like shit, but it should look like shit because it's a post-apocalypse. It's a post-zombie apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that one's interesting. I never saw Millions. Did you see Millions? I did. Millions is a nice movie. It's okay. a very it's a very sweet kind of movie. Um, I understand why it's been kind of forgotten, but I found it very moving when I saw it. I was like, this is a very sweet uh, film that has a lot of love for its characters. Is it kind of a warm up to Slumdog? 
Yes and no. It's not as dark as Slumdog. Yeah. I... I like Slumdog. And, and by not to, people are like, oh, racism. Um, just to be clear, <laughs> dark as in there is like in Slumdog, a guy gets tortured. No one gets tortured in millions. Fair. Not Fair. referring to skin color. Anyway, continue. I Yeah, I, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Slumdog Millionaire a little bit. Um, yeah, talking talk, about let's, Dan Boyle. Let's chat about that one. You, you did a great article sort of charting its unusual release. It was supposed to go like direct to video. Like it, again, Danny Boy was coming off of so he made Twenty Eight Days Later, revitalized the genre. He made Millions, which was a critical smash, but not a box office smash. Uh, Sunshine, I think, was supposed to be kind of a Twenty Eight Days Later like success, but it wasn't. Um, and then so he made Slumdog Millionaire, which was made kind of down and dirty. Um, you know, he he worked with cinematographer Anthony Dodd Mantle, and they shot very quickly. They shot on the streets of India. Uh, and I think, I mean, I wrote the article, I should remember this, but I think while they were shooting, they weren't necessarily sure if they were getting a theatrical release or not. And it, uh, wasn't until, um, Fox Searchlight kind of came around and, uh, you know, saw that like, oh, this might actually be something. And then premiered it at Telluride where it just exploded. Uh, same thing at the Toronto Film Festival. And then they were like, oh, maybe this movie is a hit. Uh, and then it won Best Picture, Best Director, um, I think Best Best Adapted Screenplay as well. It won eight Oscars. Yeah, Best Original Score, all kinds of things. Uh, and like, I mean, it was Slumdog Millionaire Mania at the time. So like I saw it based on the festival buzz and I loved it. And then as it like wore on over the award season, everyone was like, uh, Slumdog Millionaire is so like slight and so commercial and then there were controversies, and then it kind of became unpopular as as a movie, as these things go. Um, and so I revisited it. Uh, nothing is nothing is as great for taking a film that people like and dragging it through the mud as the Oscars. What a great, <laughs> great idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, the same can be said for Bohemian Rhapsody, but that movie is trash. That movie was always trash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Slumdog Millionaire. I mean, it's been a few years since I've seen it, but it it held up quite well. I was very curious to see because uh, it had kind of faded in my mind a little bit. But I still think the filmmaking is very visceral and very interesting, and the way that story is told, I think, is is uh, really well done. Yeah, on a technical level, I really appreciate Slumdog, and I even appreciate like I get it. It's a fairy tale. That's yeah. fine. But I will also accept the fact that. If you're Indian, you may not like this movie that was directed by a white guy. And even though the the book was written by an Indian guy, it was adapted by a white screenwriter. I get that these these representation claims do have merit. And I do think that it's borne out a little bit in Slumdog. Um, I don't want to be like everything is hashtag problematic. But I I, I will say that, you know, there is merit to that argument against Slumdog. But I would also say on the same on the same level, we, we there is undeniable technical craft that's very impressive in that movie. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting film, but that definitely like rocketed uh, Danny Boyle's stature. Um, yeah, pretty high, and it made 127 yeah. hours like like one of the biggest. Like it made it like a must see film of 2010. Yeah, that was a huge movie when it came out. It was uh, you got to see it, and I think it made quite a bit of money. 127 hours. Um, he made $127. And then he made Trance, which is a movie that hinges around the pubic hair of Rosario Dawson. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the whole, like, that's what the story's um, about. 
Fun fun fact, 227 hours is not a hit. Oh, okay. Do you Never want to mind. guess how much money it made? How much money did it make? $18 million. That's all it made? It made 60 worldwide, but domestically it made $18 million. Yikes. Which is far, far less than the... Let's see how much Slumdog made. $141 million made by Slumdog. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Although I do remember at the time all the talk in 127 hours with that the arm cutting scene was just like unbearable to watch. So some people were like, I'm not going to go watch it, that. It's not easy to watch. I'll, I'll say that. No. And the way that Boyle decides to shoot it and cut it together and the sound effects that he uses are pretty, pretty. Yeah, ridiculous. there's a there's a there's a particularly unforgettable. It's seared into my brain. A use <laughs> the buzz. Of, I was thinking of the violin string <laughs> to oh. represent his tendon being yeah. cut. Yeah. That's it, but it it sounds like it's almost like being tasered when yeah. he, he's like starting to kind of cut the tin. <laughs> I don't want to think about it anymore. Um, so Trance is a movie. <laughs> Do you like Trance? I like Trance. I think it's fun. It's no, still I don't. I don't like Trance. Fine, you hater. I just uh, I don't even really remember. It's I, I actually have to check my review on it, but I remember I don't <laughs> like it. I can't remember. That's the thing. You see so many movies, and you're like, I remember I don't like it. But I don't remember why. But I don't remember precisely why. And now I feel shitty for not for being like, why don't you like trance? And I it's it's certainly not one of his best movies. It's it's like an art heist thriller psychological drama mix kind of thing. And I don't think it's great, but I think it's kind of it's fun in like a trashy way. Sure. (laughs) That's my take on trance. All right. Fair enough. In a trashy way. Fair but enough. yeah, I'll see anything Danny Boyle does. I, I mean, <laughs> even trust, which you can't really remember. Even trust. I, I will say, watching yesterday, I was like, man, I'm kind of glad that Kerry Fukunaga is doing Bond now, because I was initially very bummed that it didn't work out with Danny Boyle and Bond, uh, especially because he was bringing on John Hards to write the screenplay, who wrote Train Spotting and Train Spotting Two, uh, based on an original idea they had, and then creative differences split. Uh, I'll be very curious to see what that idea was, and I think he he could make a fun Bond film. But uh, yesterday just kind of really dampened my enthusiasm for that. So, yeah, I mean, here's the thing about Danny Boyle is he always seems to bounce back. So yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I just think I think while his direction is is a little bland in yesterday, I think the film suffers from far greater problems. Yeah, agreed. All right, uh, anything else to say, or should we move on to recently watched? Uh, we can move on to recently watched. All right. What have you seen lately? So I finally filled in a major gap in my Spielberg filmography. Uh, I had never seen Empire of the Sun, and now I have seen Empire of the Sun, and Empire of the Sun is very good. Um, I remember you uh, raving about it on our Spielberg podcast, um, talking about how much you like it. Uh, it was insane to me how good Christian Bale is in this movie at how young of an age like he literally carries this whole movie on his shoulders and he's so good in it um just really really dynamic performance um i mean the whole film is about the loss of innocence it's um uh you know it's it's about a young boy who becomes a pow basically in a japanese internment camp during world war ii um while his family's living in shanghai and it's just kind of his life in this internment camp and him coming to grips with the real world in a really striking and horrific way and uh, obviously losing his innocence. Um, there's 
there's a lot of like David Lean kind of like epic nature in the film and the filmmaking of Spielberg in this movie, um, which I liked. Like I, I feel like you can't really get away with making such a long movie about something like this anymore. Like it looked no further than something like Rescue Dawn, which Werner Herzog made for like pennies or something like that. Uh, I just it was also like, with Christian Bale. <laughs> also with Christian Bale. Um, it was just kind of nice just on a base level for me to be able to sit back and like languish in this epic uh, period tale for, you know, two hours and 45 minutes or however long this movie is. Uh, I kind of, I missed movies like that that were very expensive and, you know, told on a grand scale. Um, So I enjoyed that aspect of it, but really Bale is just terrific. And I think Spielberg's filmmaking, like some of the shot compositions in this movie are just breathtaking. Uh, He worked with cinematographer Alan Debio, uh, and this was before the Janusz Kaminski years, just a few years before. Uh, I think Empire of the Sun was in 87, something like that. And Empire of the Sun is after Color Purple, right? Yes, I think so. Okay. And I have not seen the Color Purple. That is one of my other major blind spots in Spielberg's filmography. Um, but this is around the period when he started to become a quote-unquote serious director. And obviously it was Schindler's List that really solidified that. Um, but... Watching Empire Sun, Empire of the Sun, it's really interesting to see him uh, kind of reconciling his entertainment-focused skills with uh, what is a, a very horrific and sad and emotional story. Yeah, I, I, I think even though you know it's not one. Of, well, I wouldn't say that um, Empire of the Sun is one of Spielberg's most rewatchable films. No. I would say it's one of his best films. I really yeah. do think it it does it does things that I think he doesn't do as much as he should, which is that it doesn't it it ends on a down note. It is mm-hmm. like something it's very bittersweet at the end in a way that I don't think he really comes back to until maybe Amistad if you want to be charitable, I would say Munich is far closer to the kind of conclusion that sort of something has been lost forever kind of feeling Um, or AI, AI a little bit AI as well. But you know, um, it's, it's a heavy film, but I I agree. Bale carries it and it's, it's really impressive. I, I would say if you were to make a list of the best Spielberg movies and you know, you don't even recognize empire of the sun, you haven't seen enough Spielberg movies. And that was me for many years. <laughs> it's never too late, folks. It's never too late. So what do you have left? Do you have just Color Purple? Uh, color Purple and Duel. Uh, have you not seen Always? Oh, and Always. Yes, I have not seen Always. <laughs> always Which... is, is a rough one. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That's uh, so I've heard. Um, but you've seen, seen Sh- Sugarland Express? Uh, oh, I haven't seen Sugarland Express. I've seen 1941. What are you doing? Why are you even on this podcast? Get out of here. <laughs> No, come on, man. He made a lot of movies. He did. He's made a lot of movies over the over the over a few decades. Listen, I've seen Hook more times than I can count. Does that count? No, it doesn't. Hook counts for nothing. <laughs> doesn't do anything. Um, but yeah, slowly but surely, working my way through. But I got sidetracked by uh, uh, an Alfred Hitchcock deep dive, um, which kind of waylaid that. And then also like just availability like i i watched empire of the sun because it was playing on like i think cinemax or something like that but 
it's not like always is uh well i think always actually was on netflix but it's not like sugarland express is like on netflix or, no the uh, only reason i have sugarland express is because it's part of that spielberg blu-ray box set yes that has like I, that has like dual and like it has dual it has 1941 it has sugarland express it has i think close encounters definitely has jaws it has et and it has jurassic park and jurassic park too yeah that one is a good buy. My fiance bought that for me for my birthday last year. So and you, yet I look at it. You have access to Sugar Land <laughs> I <Express>. have access. <laughs> and I think, I think I'll just watch Zodiac again. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. <laughs> I could pull it out, but I mean, because I, I got to sit there and I got to pay attention and I got to make sure that like, all right, like I can only see for this for the first time, one time. I want to make sure it's good. So. Got to make it count. Got to like make 1941 days. count. One of those mood things, and especially like uh, with Empire of the Sun, I knew it was long, and I can like I had it recorded on my DVR, and I had considered watching it a few other times, but I was waiting until like I had a Saturday, and I had like four or five hours where I was free, and I was like, all right, gonna watch Empire of the Sun. Like, I have enough time, I'm not gonna have to pause it because I hate like starting and stopping movies and picking them up later. Yeah, same. So, so yeah, I watched Empire of the Sun. I have not seen every Spielberg movie. Watch along with me. All right. Um, for me, uh, what I watched this weekend was Tremors, which is, uh, Tremors and Tremors 2 and Tremors 3. Have you seen Tremors 4? I have not seen Or Tremors Tremors 5 or Tremors 6? (laughs) But all of this to say, I've not seen some of the films from our greatest living director, but I have seen four Tremors movies. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, uh, I had never seen Tremors before and, uh, I decided to, to give it a watch because it had been on my list for a while. And I really enjoyed it. And it's just, it's basically a 50s B monster movie that happened to be released in 1990. The yep. premise is, is that Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward are these two kind of shit kicking handymen, uh, in a small Oklahoma town or Nevada town in the South. They're in the Southwest. It doesn't matter. Um, and <laughs> same difference. Same fucking difference. Who cares? Um, and they are, they're working and all of a sudden, these giant worms start coming up and eating people. And that's the movie. <laughs> They're just these sandworms wreaking havoc on a town of like 14 people. And yes, that is very small, but it's, it works. Basically the movie plays is like that game you played when you were a kid, the floor is lava. It reaches the point where you can't like, none of the characters can like walk along the ground because the, the, uh, the creatures who are called graboids, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the graboids will, will sense the vibration and they'll get you. Um, just how fun is that? Um, the movie is just very enjoyable. It's like, it's a, it's a very quick 95 minutes. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. It's just, it's very good for what it is. Um, it doesn't have lofty aspirations, but you know, it is a B monster movie and we don't really, those don't exist anymore. No. So I, I had a lot of fun, uh, with tremors. Uh, I saw, I watched it on stars. So if you have a star subscription, you can watch tremors too. It's uh, it's a lot of fun and very silly, yes. and Kevin Bacon is awesome in it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a, I I genuine like I genuinely enjoyed Tremors. I, I had a lot of fun with it, so that was my recently watched. All right, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood, and you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.